what you'll notice as like a tendency over time is that you'll try something and be like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad I bought this. And then you will go to rebuy it and find out A, that it is not available or B, that the mm-hmm. price has gone up 20 times since you last looked at it or whatever the case might be. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I am joined by Billy from Canada today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know how to do a good Canadian accent, but I will say I love it up here. You're not in Canada, though, are you? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you are. Oh, I just said that as a joke. I, I thought you were in Colorado, but that's cool. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> no, we're in Whistler in British Columbia. <laughs> had Sweet. some Tim Hortons yesterday. Had some, yeah, we can touch on it a little, in a couple seconds, but I uh, had some Canadian wine. We had nice. poutine. I'm doing the full thing. Yeah. Poutine's, there's several places. There's like a, I don't know if it's a, it's not a Canadian chain, but there's a burger chain in Baltimore that sells poutine. That's like the only like Canadian thing that they have. I don't know if that's also like an upper Midwest thing or if it's strictly Canadian, but yeah, they have burgers and poutine and like boozy shakes. It's a cool place. I thought it was only in French Canada, but it's everywhere here. So maybe it trickled down to Northern Midwest. Sure. That's a good, it's wow. a good theme to have here. We, apart from you're working more remote than you typically are, and our team is headed out to Kentucky later this month. We might have talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but going out to twice a year, we like to get together as a team since we're all remote, do some strategy, and just get to have some unique experiences together. And this time, focused all around bourbon, hitting a couple distilleries out there in the Cincinnati and Kentucky, Louisville area. And uh, yeah, I think this our guest today is a good lead in to some things that we have unique things that we have coming to the vent platform over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, now this will be our first kind of whiskey focused interview, which is really exciting. And on this first one, we're leaning into more of the collector first, rather than having an expert or somebody get really in the weeds. We've done this before with a couple wine collectors, investors on the platform as well. So it's really cool to see the passion mix over. But yeah, no, it's a really interesting interview and it's nice to be leaning, continuing to lean more into our whiskey knowledge base because, you know, our platform has a lot of whiskey and people love it. And I think that American whiskey bourbon enthusiasts in the U.S. have really clear context for some of these kind of like supply and demand tug and pull and tugs in like just globally that exists in the whiskey market, whether it's bourbon or like some of these other categories as well, because there are some whiskeys, bourbons in the US that are just very difficult to find state by state. So many enthusiasts have this hunter, quasi collector sort of mentality about them. I know that I certainly did when I first got into bourbon and like it's still, as we were talking before the podcast, it's still fun to find highly allocated items. So I think that, yeah, like when you think about investment grade whiskey globally across the market, U.S. and bourbon drinkers have a really unique context for understanding that that dynamic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll touch on some bourbon. He touches on a little bit of like his favorite kind of scotch kind of styles. Yeah. So we'll introduce him here in a second. I guess I will share a little bit more about what we've had wine wise up here so far. So for those who don't know, Canada, there's two main like kind of wine growing regions. One's kind of centered on the east around like the Niagara Peninsula around the Great Lakes over there. 
And then the Okanagan Valley, I'm probably saying that wrong, is over here in British Columbia, like a north, I think it's a north-south running valley. There's a lake in the middle. And basically all these vines just grow down towards the lake. And they're known for, according to the Wine Bible, which I got the new one recently. It's a blast from the past. It was the first book I ever had. Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and of course, colder variety, or colder climate varieties like Pinot Noir and Riesling. So we had yesterday two Cab Francs, a 2019 and a 2020, as well as a Pinot Noir. And, oh, and a sparkling. You would have, you would appreciate it. Yeah, it was a 2017 nice. traditional method, all from the Okanagan Valley. Yeah, I went to the local liquor store, which is Canada has a monopoly here. So that was really interesting. The two expressions we got of Cab Franc couldn't have been more different. So I think they're still trying to I'm still trying to find what the true kind of through line is in their styles. But one was like 14 plus alcohol, just that primary fruit straightforward. The other one was like 12, eight had a lot of oak on it randomly. So I'm basically going to have to try a few more to get a sense of what they're like. And the Pinot Noir was, it started out really reductive. So we had to just keep opening it up and it seemed very red fruit forward, but a lot more learning to be had. But I love just going somewhere and trying to experienced their local wines oh and the sparkling was it was pretty good i think it was disgorged it was a chardonnay chardonnay pinot blanc and some pinot noir or maybe cool. pinot noir and some pinot blanc yeah mousse was it was interesting it wasn't very yeasty i think mm. it was only on the leaves for two years so technically it's been in this bottle for three years that was interesting but yeah to be continued i will have more next week on if we find any super gems Many, like we were talking maybe in some of our past episodes, many hybrids up in that area, or is it not quite crazy enough climate to have to do a bunch of off the beaten path things? If you're doing um, Pinot Noir, it must not be that terrible. No, I think the East Coast, and I'm not like an expert on Canadian wine, but I think the East mm-hmm. Coast more of the hybrids. Okay. I know Vidal is used widely in ice wine. I don't know if that's used as widely on the side for ice wine. They make ice wine on both sides, but even more on the east. So I will look into that. I will get back to you. But I don't think, from what I read in the wine Bible, the hybrids aren't as big on the West Coast. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we had, we had, we've talked about Michigan wine. We've talked about Canadian, Canadian wine. Um, we're expanding north in our Can't wine knowledge. The North Pole wine, Santa's wine. Yeah. <laughs> Do they make wine in Russia, I wonder? I guess they do, somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're around the Black Sea and some other stuff. Ukraine, yeah. technically the Crimean well, okay. Peninsula. Now. <laughs> I was they make a lot like, of wine there. That was actually one reason Putin wanted it back. Dead center of Russia. <laughs> so more ahead in mind. No, Siberia, I don't think, makes wine. Yeah. <laughs> Not that it's the center. Oh. Cool. Shall we get to our interview? You want to interview yes. our guest? So, yeah, sure. We have Danny Jassy, who is the general partner at Chroma Ventures. So he's a VC, but as Billy also described, he is an avid whiskey enthusiast of, of all sorts. So we, like Billy said, we talked about scotch and bourbon, especially giving some really good context about the ebb and flow of the consumer culture around bourbon in the US over the last 15 or so years. He's done a ton of data analysis and collecting and getting of data around this over time and has an extensive knowledge of how bourbon culture has moved in the U.S. over the last 15 or so years. Yeah, it's great to have on. I really may want to touch on a few other things about his projects, but it's cool to have someone who's both an enthusiast of a category, but also involved in kind of the stage of business that we're in terms of being a VC and working with startups himself. So, Yeah. Yeah. He, from that VC side, he and Nick had been in conversations for a while now, I'm not exactly quite sure how they got connected, but Danny actually came on when we did Clubhouse back in 2021. We used to 
if anybody remembers that app, basically everybody could come into a room and kind of hear us all ramble. And that was back when it was just me, Nick and Patrick. And he came on. Brady was listening, one of our few <laughs> audience members. So that was great. But yeah, he has a very like data, like you were saying, data driven approach to investing. So he made his own like pricing spreadsheets and he analyzed the whiskey market. Now there's some technology that we touch on that he can can do that faster. So it's not as manual for him. But I love that he took that approach to finding value. But he's also constantly exploring and tasting new things, which I also love. We do touch on like Armagnac and we touch on French yeah. Mark, which is like Grappa in this. Mach, I guess it would be pronounced in French. But I love kind of the he's focused, but yet also open to trying new things. And that's always fun when you're talking to somebody so passionate about the, the macro space. Yeah, no, for sure. We definitely learned. I know that I learned a lot of things and I hope our audience has a lot to take away from it as we ease into some of these upcoming whiskey episodes, trying to bring more whiskey content to the podcast as we expand our offerings into whiskey on the Vint platform. So that's something to look forward to as well over the coming weeks. But hope everyone enjoys this interview with Danny Jassy. All right, we are here with Danny Jassy, formerly of Clubhouse Vent fame. How are you doing today? Thanks for joining. Doing wonderful. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, no it problem. Long, it was a long time ago, Billy, when it was Danny and me and our co-founders and their girlfriends on the, uh, on yeah. the Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't remember, we used to do Clubhouses every week. And we would all just hop on and chat about things that were going on with Vint. I think we started like April, 2021, or maybe it was March when Patrick started, but I was still working at my old company. So I would go down to like tasting room and like just do the clubhouse and then come back. They're going <laughs> to love this free publicity. This is 12 <laughs> downloads coming their way right now. <laughs> <laughs> clubhouse. Well, yeah, so <laughs> Danny has been like we mentioned before, he works in the VC space. So he's been an advisor to Nick on that side, but then he also has a deep passion for whiskey and he collects a lot. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into it and some of your areas of passion in the whiskey space? And then we'll yeah, meander around. Absolutely. So I got into whiskey because one of my buddies who had recently been hired at a hedge fund was like, oh, my boss drinks bourbon. So I drink bourbon now. This was probably 12 years ago. And I was like, sure. So we're hanging out. I think I had asked for a beer and he's, which of these brown liquors would you prefer instead? And I just said, I'll take that one. <laughs> and like any enterprising post-college person, you've probably had some experience taking shots or whatever it is and not necessarily pleasant experience. But I think we had maybe like Woodford Reserve or some sort of basic bourbon. And mm. I was like, wow, this is really good. And I've always been like a sensorial, like food tasty person, even going back to being very young, whether right. it's coffee or cheese or just, I've always loved that stuff. So once I found out that there was a huge amount, like flavor profiles and differences and things that made each one unique and the age statements, it just was like a match made in heaven in terms of nerdery. I just jumped right in and was like immediately interested in trying them and evaluating them or figuring out my own personal preferences. That was the start of what has proven to be an expensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how big is your collection grown to after that early days? It's hard to say because I half collect and I half drink and a lot of it ends up getting shared with my friends. I would estimate that maybe half are like investment grade or a third. It would take me like two lifetimes to finish this stuff. <laughs> but 
what you'll notice as like a tendency over time is that you'll try something and be like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad I bought this. And then you will go to rebuy it and find out A, that it is not available or B, that mm-hmm. the price has gone up 20 times since you last looked at it or whatever the case might be. So I think it's part of the learning curve arc because this has been consistent among a lot of different people that are hobbyists or experts in this space where they go from buying one of something to immediately just buying six of them without like sight unseen. I'm just going to buy six. I'll figure it out later. And then what ends up happening is your tastes change or yes, it's good, but not good enough to warrant that amount of square footage in your closet or whatever the case might be. And then now you have this surplus of bottles and you're like, what do I do with these? There's a gigantic gray market for reselling them, which is illegal. It's not even technically illegal. It's just illegal, but there's no enforcement. So there's a huge cottage industry of that. You can take them to auction, but not all of them necessarily have a lot of liquidity or you can just gift them out over time, which is what I have tended to do for miscellaneous random things. So I would say if I had to desert island myself, there's hundred things that to me are like meaningful and special. And that makes a lot of sense the, in the way the, of um, the collector side. I'm... Yeah, I was Go gonna. Ahead, you talked about like the narc or the arc of how you get into the space and you go from buying one to buying six. There are various kinds of arcs I think that people go through, especially with collecting wine or whiskey. You start out, oh man, Woodford Reserve, you know, double oaked, buy all that I can. I love it. It's my favorite. And then you can slowly work up through and you discover new things. Your palate evolves. What do you think are the common steps for any like new bourbon or whiskey or scotch aficionado when they come in? What are maybe the couple steps that someone goes through on their way to collecting that you've experienced? Mm, that's a good question. The world's changed a lot since I started. It's like completely different landscape between then and now. I would say for me, like just, I never was buying multiples of Woodford Reserve, for example, because you just go to the store and you just buy it. But what I would buy multiples of are independently bottled single casks Mm -hmm. and scotch primarily Mm -hmm. and kind of one-offs that maybe you're like, I just have a feeling that this would be worth it. Particularly if you can opportunistically buy based on price. That's the other thing is that sometimes I'll just take one step back. A lot of the fun is it's not really like the precise definition of an arbitrage because you're not capturing a risk-free spread of any type. But if you know something is worth X and it is being sold for Y, there is a temptation to buy it for Y because you're basically like capturing via drinking in theory the excess value of that bottle. Some things I have forecasted, this will go up in price and it does make sense to buy six of them at a hundred. And now if they are 300 or 400, I have the luxury of drinking more of it over time at a cheaper cost basis. That's one way of looking Mm -hmm. at it. So anyways, what does the arc look like? I think now people have a tougher time because so much stuff is allocated. It's hard to get. When I started, it was very easy to try a lot of different things and really pick the spots you wanted to play in, and then you can start going ham with your discretionary income on this stuff. So collectibles and collecting, like that is a different ballgame than consumption because consumption is very specific to your personal tastes. And I think probably for me, I went from bourbon, which I would describe as a narrower axis of flavor. Things can be woodier or slightly fruitier, or they can be more vanilla-y or more like that's just being very broad with it. Those are like caramely, like those are the, maybe the four main categories of flavor that you might be able to dimension on a bourbon. 
And then you start moving over to Scotch and you're like, wow, this is a game changer because there are the Islays, which can be smoky or the smoke can be like Band-Aids or it can be barbecue. And when you mm. think about those different adjectives, you realize that they're very different. They can be fruity. It can be sweet. And the opportunity to try a lot of different stuff really expands in Scotch. So I got pretty into Scotch for a while because that was where a there was a lot of accessibility for different types of bottlings, but B, you can really narrow, narrow your own tastes in a more discreet way. And I would say lately it's gone back to 50-50 scotch, 50-50 bourbon with some other wild cards in there, like Armagnac. If we get into anything about deep value for the buck, there's lots of great Armagnac that doesn't seeming seemingly cost very much relative to the quality. But yeah, I was just going to say there, Armagnac, for anybody who likes cognac, but basically wants this very similar product for a different, a much better price point, Armagnac is like always under the radar. I think that's such yeah. an interesting I think Ar Armagnac is the bourbon drinker's dollar discount store equivalent, but not in quality, just in price. Yeah. Though I do seem to be unique among many of my friends in preferring, not preferring, but even enjoying Armagnac. I have a lot of friends who are like, it's too grapey and too sweet. And they're right. It is made from grapes and it is sweet, but in a way, many bourbons come off as very sweet. So give it a yeah. shot. If you're listening and you haven't considered Armagnac, give it a shot. It might work for you. <laughs> so how, speaking of prices going up, like we, we've had a few people on the podcast who are maybe older and they're like, I was buying Burgundy back in the seventies or eighties when it was super cheap. <laughs> and we're like, I've heard those stories, cool. but that was really long ago. But Scotch in particular, and a lot of high-end whiskey, Japanese, over the past just 20 years, 10 years, as long as you've been buying it, has seen that same price escalation. What has that been like to see some of these bottles just exponentially rise and other ones maybe fly under the radar? Some of it is rational behavior, even though I don't think many people that have been interested in this space would agree with. But there is a finite supply of certain things, either because the distillery is closed or they're no longer producing it in the same way that they were. And it's not made up that there is a real meaningful difference between, let's say, wild turkey that was made in the late 80s, early 90s versus wild turkey of today. They're fundamentally different products. So that is one way of thinking about it, where you say, what would you pay for something that doesn't exist is finite and each sip of consumption reduces the outstanding supply. Prices shouldn't trend towards infinity, but there is a little bit of what will the marginal buy or pay for that. If it's mm -hmm. $1 more than 500, then the price is now 501. There's no real like nexus to rational value there. It's just, oh, this person has more money and they want it. So they're going to buy it. Great. On the other hand, there are plenty of things that are, there's tons and tons of back inventory, not back inventory, but like aging products. Some of the popular bourbons that are contemporary, like Weller's or most of the Buffalo Trace stuff would be like a good example of this. Like they will be making those products for the remainder of our adult lives, which are hopefully long and fruitful. There is no <laughs> like real reason to necessarily bid those up, except that they are hard to find in this moment. So if you wanted a Weller product, then yeah, it'll cost you like market clearing price of 100, 200, 300 bucks, depending on the specific label we're talking about. And for a lot of people, that's like shocking. But to me, again, that kind of makes sense. Like it's just, that's a market clearing price, but let's also be very clear. There is nothing meaningfully collectible or 
valuable about that. That is just, I want to buy this too. If you pay 200 bucks for a better seat at some game or concert versus the whatever seat price analogy we're making here, 40 bucks or something, it's like, yeah, maybe you got something out of it. You're closer to the stage, whatever. Like, that's it. You're at the concert, right. you leave, the money's gone. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you had fun, enjoy yourself. That's how I would liken a lot of the current bourbon, specifically bourbon, but also even some scotch. It's if you know enough about the product, then you realize I'll, I will either buy it or I won't, but you can't complaining about the price at this point is a fool's errand. Like you just, you're going to be Abe Simpson shouting at the sun. There's no point. <laughs> yeah. So you and then to wrap up this point, you compare that to things that are actually rare or unique or qualified in some way. And that's where a lot of the price increases totally make sense when you comp it to other rare desired Veblen good discretionary, like status symbol-y type things that people buy. So it does have, yeah, it does make economic sense. There's a rationality to all of this that I think frustrates people because deep down they know it makes sense, but they don't want to, they don't want to accept it. Something that's not rational, I think, when I talk to wine collectors or wine drinkers versus brown liquor collectors and drinkers, a pour of whiskey, right, two ounces, that's usually I say like a drink is, you get almost or actually more than twice as much in terms of individual drinks out of a bottle of brown liquor than you do a bottle of wine, which you also basically have to drink right when you open it. But people totally. maybe scoff at spending $200, $250 for a bottle of whiskey, but oh yeah, $100 a bottle of wine. That makes sense. I've heard that before. Even though they're the same value in terms of number of drinks that you get out of it and even more marginal value given that you can drink brown liquors over time, over totally a long period agree. of time. So yeah. That's, I, I, I mean, yeah, but I this is a dangerous rationale because this is, I've used that exact rationale to buy lots of things and it's yeah. you know, maybe that was spending well done or not, depending on who you ask. So if you like amortize the cost of a bottle and you say, I go to a bar and I get like the like shittiest cocktail in America and it's going to be $15 now after tax and tip and that's yeah. one drink and you say, okay, I'm willing to spend $15 per two ounces. Let's just be generous and say that they put sure. two ounces of Wheatley vodka in there or whatever they did. Then you're getting about 12 pours per bottle. So what's 12 times the 15 or the 20 that you spent all in. And it's, that's what you should be willing to buy. And this is being compared against a crappy drink at a bar. And we're already talking about a few hundred bucks for that bottle now. And it will last in the right conditions for years, years. It can be open and sipped on. So I think that's not exactly rocket science. I think that math doesn't escape people. And that's another reason why it's like, the marketing psychology of, are you making a meaningful purchase decision between $59.99 and $99.99? Like on some level, you're like, ah, it's like around a hundred bucks. And that causes price creep. Yeah. yeah. How much do you think the master distiller plays a part in some of these eras or profiles of spirits over time? Because there's a few specific that really high-end bottles, they'll say it's made by this famous master distiller. I know when I was purchasing my personal casks for investment. There was a few people that were like, oh, they just came over here. This is going to be their first round of new make. Got to get in on it. Yeah, uh, how much I've heard that can, too. <laughs> how much can you discern or can you tell those eras? And I know there's like a stylistic change over time, but what do you think on that front? I think it's kind of, I think there's two ways to look at this. I think that one blending is incredibly hard. And I think that the people who are proven to be good blenders have a unique talent 
that does translate into the quality of the product. So that's like part one is that yes, in theory, that should matter. I think part two is that there are many things that are like beyond storied for their quality that really don't have much of a master blender element to their quality. Like obviously it's there, someone did it and it's good, but it's not necessarily innate to that product itself. So I think it's a combination of the era in which the whiskey was made. And it's mm-hmm. a combination of the like equipment that is used, which has huge impact. Obviously right. the nuances of where and how it was stored, because even producers have specific like cuts of their warehouse that will be huge determinants of overall quality. And then at some point there's obviously the person that is helping with the taste profile and selecting for it that will matter. Not a clear answer, but I would put it at like 20%, 25%. No offense to people who do that. And 75% those other factors, but that's like a finger in the air estimation of how it all ties together. Yeah. I that's mean, it's still, that's why it's that's, not a bit. I'm oh, sorry, Bill. I was just going to say, that's why a single barrel selection matters so much to people versus this maker's selection or something like that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's barrel specific, not either vintage or batch. Sometimes it's batch specific, I guess, with some bourbons, but way more oriented around specific barrels, even if they came out of the same mash and stuff like that. Which is a fun way to play the lottery. Sometimes those barrel picks are phenomenal and other times they're like, okay. And at the minimum, you get a slightly different twist on the distillery character. I think that comes across Mm -hmm. much more acutely in scotch because that's really where you'll get some wild single casks that are selected versus bourbon's got a range to it, but it's still fairly narrow in my opinion, Mm -hmm. compared to the the scotch, not narrow in a pejorative way where it's like less good, but it's just, there's just less stuff you can do with bourbon just definitionally. But anyways, yeah, big fan of the random barrel picks. There's a little bit of a, has their own like hype cycle of the day. I think barrel picks have gotten hyped in a certain sense, because people assume that they are innately or inherently better. And (laughs) that's definitely not necessarily true, but they are Mm -hmm. sure going to be different. And that does make it fun. Yeah, that is fun. Can you elaborate a little bit more? I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to think about where barrels were stored in warehouses, a type of warehouse and how that has an impact. Because one of our last Bowmore bottlings we had was stored in their like number one vaults. And we, we made a big deal about how this was been its whole mm-hmm. life here. Can you talk about that impact? Because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a complete knowledge of the warehouses and necessarily how they slice and dice them. I know that the fans certainly know, like on a very specific level for let's say Russell's Reserve, they have different warehouses that impact some different qualities, broadly speaking, like whatever. I won't get into it beyond that. But generally, yes, if you imagine a oven and you throw a pizza in the oven and this hypothetical pizza touches all four corners of the oven and you just set some temperature and you you know come back in 20 minutes, There's going to be a difference between the edges of that pizza versus the center versus the left or the right, whatever. And maybe that's a crude analogy of thinking about this. Like there are just different conditions in an oven, assuming it's not a very high end one, with just random crappy oven that will (laughs) produce different results. And for that reason, if you liked very burnt crispy pizza, maybe you would select towards a different part of the oven than if you were 
deranged and like soggy undercooked pizza or something. <laughs> so the way that they manage the warehouses is for sure interesting. And there can absolutely be like a provenance angle to that. Provenance isn't the right word, but there can be like a whatever, an angle there. And I'm not so sure that the things that I would consider to be the best whiskeys that I've ever had necessarily have that per se, but certainly there are some famous examples that do. And let's not downplay that it matters a lot. Just overall, so it's temperature and humidity and these kinds of things. Is that yeah? What yeah, are the main airflow? Fact? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, temperature, the volatility of the temperature matters quite a bit. The amount of like airflow, where it is relative to the center versus the edges, the height within the facility, these things all play an important factor. Yeah, I think that's something, especially in people don't consider like the, like one reason Scotland makes scotch is because it's nice, it's cool and humid and it's consistent year round. Whereas making whiskey in like Kentucky, for example, where it gets really hot in the summer, really cold in the winter, part of that craft is moving those barrels around the warehouse if you want an even maturation across all lots or purposely leaving them in different spots just to get like different notes. I think that's right. Well, just the aging itself. The scotch yeah. typically matures in the high teens, let's say as a generalized statement. Bourbon typically matures at six to eight to maybe 10 years old before you begin to veer into a product that could be too oaky. Again, generalizing there. And also the casking. Bourbon has to use new oak, so it's, of course, going to be a little more aggressive, whereas scotch could be on a fourth fill. Yeah, and the evaporation rate, too. Like you're saying, not only does it mature, but like if you leave a bourbon barrel basically untouched or untopped up for a long period of time, you're not going to have a ton after like 15 years that's left in that barrel. Just yeah. Evaporation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, I'm not sure to what level they report the stats for them anymore. They used to provide pretty detailed like outturn numbers and evaporation rates. Maybe they still do the evaporation rates. I know that they stopped reporting the quantity, but <laughs> yeah, routinely they lose 75% to the angel's share, which is just evaporation. Yeah. That's just wild, but that concentrates yeah. some of that flavor. So, I mean, it does. You, it does. Do. So what are you most interested in now? What are your, I know you said 50, uh, besides Armagnac, like 50% bourbon, some scotch, are there specific re regions you're digging into right now? I think primarily scotch and bourbon and Armagnac are the three main categories that I care about. Like oddball things like Mark is hard to find good Mark, but some of it is very good. And Mark is basically really similar to Grappa. So Grappa, you've taken the grape pumice, which is like leftover from winemaking and you ferment that and it's usually clear. So it's unaged. Mark can be aged. It's possible that Mark is always aged. I'd have to, I'd have to double check that, but there are some really interesting marks that I've brought to whiskey tastings and everyone's like, Whoa, what is this? And I'm <laughs> like, this is Mark. And no one is hunting for Mark. No one could, no one cares about that. So that's the, I have a couple specific ones that I like, but that's also one where it's hard to go fish because I'm going to just hazard a guess that 90% of people listening to this have not even heard of Mark, which is yeah. M-A-R-C. And like, where yeah. would they go buy it? How would they get it? If you're in a control state, good luck. Like that stuff is more the outer fringes of just being in a nerdy hobby. But I would say that scotch and bourbon are premier areas of focus. And with bourbon specifically, I pretty much only buy what I would consider to be collectible, drinkable bourbon. So things that I want to drink, but that also are 
innately worth what is now increasingly a very high entry cost. For scotch, there's a lot more room to just, it's like the old days. You can just buy random stuff and be like, ah, this was not worth the 89 bucks. Ah, this one was not worth the 50, 150 bucks. Oh, this one was to- totally worth it. It was amazing. So, just Are there depends. any subregions within Scotland that you're a little, you lean more to? Are you an Isla guy? Are you more of a Highlands Bayside guy? Yeah, you could probably actually go the other direction and say that the modern contemporary lowlands I don't think is something that I'm necessarily trying to drink much of. There's always exceptions Mm -hmm. to these things, but generally, and my tastes have moved around where sometimes you are in the mood for Islay whiskeys preferentially. And other times it's lens are great. Highlands are very interesting because they have a different form factor than the peated Islays that you can get. And obviously Campbelltown, amazing. Those are now very Mm -hmm. hard to find all of them, but those are extremely unique and how they come across and the islands I mean, pretty much just covered all of Scotland right there. I think you're getting the sense that it's all good, but the islands, particularly Lechig and Talisker, these are great. So yeah, there's really no shortage of interesting stuff to try. And you're at this point where if a generic XYZ bourbon, I'm just trying to think of like a just to me fundamentally fine, but would not waste my time bourbon that other people seem to covet and that could be bookers or blantons or some of the weller stuff like they're good that's fine great they're a couple hundred bucks for the most part a couple hundred dollars will buy you like a lot of different types of interesting scotch still to this day certain brands hmm. certain vintages certain age statements are now inching closer to three or four hundred bucks and they used to be 90 or less but nevertheless if the choice is a Booker's Blanton's combo, or let's say the 31 year old Lefroig that I just bought last week. I'll go with the 31 year old Lefroig. Like the that's awesome. Yeah. But again, we're still in this category where let's just zoom out. I'm talking about spending four hundred dollars on a bottle of liquor. Like that's fundamentally crazy to a lot of the country and world. So there's still a little bit of a calibration that probably needs to take place. No, no real interest in Japanese whiskeys. I haven't heard you mention much. No, I never have had much of a preference. And I guess the two reasons for that are that one, the general profile of them is softer, more floral. And I am by no mm-hmm. means like a lusting for proof person. I think you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you said, what is the journey of a whiskey person? Yeah, right. I think that it follows the trajectory of a beer person. Like you have Coors Light in college and then you have your first IPA and you're like, oh my God, I didn't even know beer had flavor. And then if you're like <laughs> most people that I've spoken to about this, they get into IPAs and all these very hoppy, high IBU beers. And then eventually you're like, ah, this is like drinking a liquefied loaf of bread and it's not actually as good as I thought. And you go back towards Belgians or lagers or something. That's how I think a lot of whiskey ends up being. Like you go from normal to I need cask strength and I'm going to drink it neat by a fireplace with my (laughs) pipe and my beard or like whatever, like some stereotype is that you can concoct for these people. And almost everyone I know over time is, you know what? I just need like a nice full flavored 48% like good, decent whiskey. And that's like the best. So with that all being said, in the arc of exploration, the Japanese whiskeys tend to be lower proof. They tend to be softer. 
And they also, even at the point where I was getting into this hobby, were not readily available. And you would come across these. I think I've tried most of the Habiki lineup or the Yamazaki lineup. And you're just like, eh. even back then, Yamazaki 18 was still 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. I missed the mm-hmm. days where it was truly like $100 or 80 bucks. And you're just like, there's a lot of substitutions for this. There are plenty of, you know, decently sherried Highland whiskeys that approximate like what a Yamazaki 18 might deliver. And at the true upper end, the things that are really unique or interesting, those are have always been very expensive. Yeah, never really got into the Japanese stuff. It's got a really ardent fan base, so clearly there's something there, and I'll just chalk that up to my own misfortune to not appreciate it. Yeah, there, there's a book called The Way of Whiskey. If you ever, it's like a guy driving around tasting a different distilleries in Japan, but it's cool. It gives you a little more. I like that profile. So I tend to lean in there, but it's what's interesting there is they can, and something a lot of people don't know in, in Scotland, people will trade whiskey from distillery to make certain blends and not just for the blended whiskeys, but you know, even cast to cast sometimes distiller. But in Japan, they have multiple different still types and they'll do different mash bills and they'll basically, they only blend in house. They don't share, especially because like the founder of Yamazaki and the guy who was the master distiller at the time had a falling out and and he went mm-hmm. over and started his own distillery. So it's like, there's, it's cool that it's so insular and there's anal about making these different styles that are all their own. It's an interesting difference for sure. Yeah. Uh, but well, yeah, I, not everybody's style. I don't style. know how they changed. They, they also recently changed designation of Japanese whiskey to mean specifically Japanese whiskey. Like for example, Ben Nevis is owned by Nika. So, you know, you could buy Ben Nevis for a while and what it tastes like Japanese whiskey in my opinion, no, but that was a primary component of the blends that they were using. So a little bit of a backdoor into at least part of the secret sauce. And Ben Nevis is wonderful. And now that one, I think most of the supply is now dedicated back to their blending. So that's, I wouldn't know if I would qualify it as like an investment catalyst, but it has acted as one, like prices for Ben Nevis have gotten much more expensive, appreciably more expensive, like independent of the rest of the whiskey market. So there's stuff like that you can be attuned to, but. Yeah, I think the mashing and maybe, I guess the mash, I think the mash has to be made there now. Maybe even the malting, yeah, the malt and then the mash. Yeah, I think they have to do that process there. So they can still import grain from Scotland, but I don't think they can actually put liquid anymore into the blend and call it Japanese whiskey, according to the new rule. It's, I'm sure, you know, what's amazing about podcasting or just being online, which is a gift and a curse. If you say anything wrong, someone will immediately tell you. So if anything that we are saying right now is not like completely <laughs> factually accurate, just go nuts in the comments. Like I want to see, I want that thing to be blown up with <laughs> corrections <laughs> because we want that engagement. Yeah. There's obviously some, they've changed the rules that that much I know. So We'll see how it goes. Some of these categories. So we've talked about bourbon. We've talked about scotch. We've talked about various kinds of brandy. If someone hasn't tried some of these spirits in the past and they want to get their hands on something, maybe not investment grade, but something to give them a baseline of what does this brown liquor (laughs) taste like at (laughs) just like a benchmark? What are some good places maybe to start in each category? Bourbon, scotch, and you can go to maybe some different regions, just a few bottles for folks that they can maybe pick up readily. Yeah, that's going to be a tough question also because it does depend on Where which at. state you're in. But I would say very broadly, if you have never tried bourbon, 
then go with something that is known to be good and not very high proof. So a super hopefully readily accessible under $30 bottle could be like just basic Buffalo Trace. That is going to be hmm. a simple representation of just what bourbon could taste like. Same with Elijah Craig. Elijah Craig is very high quality for what it is. Yeah. Big fan of Elijah Craig overall. So either one of those would be a great way to just even evaluate generically if you like bourbon. And then if you do, there's lots of other premiumized options. Scotch, again, is hard because I think probably if you have never tried scotch, you would want to air towards a heavily sherried scotch that seems to be more palatable to people. So that could be Glendronic, which overall is delicious. You can think of it as Macallan. It's very similar in spirit to Macallan. I think it's better, generally speaking, and it's not marked up. So a Macallan 12 at this point is like 100 bucks, and a Glendronic 12 is 50 Or yeah. you could go big and go for the 15-year, which is 80 And mm -hmm. that's a great place to start. And if that's good, then you've got a lot of options within Scotch because you can go towards something that is honey as like a primary flavor component and maybe slight citrus, which I would say Kleinlish 14. Pretty much can't miss with that. If you wanted to start edging into the smoky category without going too aggressively Islay, you could try Talisker 10. Um, mm -hmm. None of these should be groundbreaking, but they're all very good. Like they're just totally, totally good for what they are. Lagavulin like 16, if you wanted to inch further into the peated Islay category. And I think if someone gifted me a Glendronic 15 and a Kleinlish 14 today, I would be like, thank you. I will drink these and enjoy them. So yeah, that's, I think, pretty good, pretty good endorsement of the respective industries still producing quality stuff at a reasonable price point. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the Elijah Craig. That, that would have been <clears throat> my answer to that question, along with Larceny and some of the wild turkeys. Those are oh, really yeah, hard yeah, to yeah. beat, like, I think, under wild Wild bucks. turkey, yeah. And again, this is where, yeah. you, what are you optimizing for? Wild turkey has a higher rye components, a spicier profile, I think, for most people. That could be a turn on sure. or a turn off, who knows. But yes, wild turkey products, incredibly high quality across the board. Even the 101, yeah. Elijah Craig, eight or nine years old, nothing offensive about it. Tastes good, goes down, mixes well. Thirty. That's great. I think you met you messed me up because I just realized that DRC makes a brandy. Marvin, yes, they do. They I'm, do, <laughs> and it is expensive. In, uh, is really expensive. So I'm not in trouble yet, but maybe ten years from now I'll be in trouble. Yeah, God, I, I'm. Yeah, it's just twenty four hundred bucks. I think from from Acker right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can uh, I can send you some Mark Rex that are not going to decimate your children's <laughs> college fund. Yeah. But yeah, one, one, you know, I'll just throw it out there. Cause it's like, good luck. Good luck with it. If you find it, it's going to be 70 bucks. And if you don't, then what can I tell you? Who knows the number that they import It's called Jackie low. And those are phenomenal. J apostrophe a C O U L O T seven year old Mark. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to now those being unavailable, thanks to my mention. But very good. <laughs> Had a lot of hits with that one. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. I didn't actually, I guess I hadn't heard of it as a brandy. To me, Mark is just the pumice after you pressing your skins and you're just going to go throw them out. So it's just the French word for the pumice. Exactly. It's, so like it's just, the, just make Mark. the French yeah. version of grappa because they're not going to carry over an Italian 
there's no Frenchman worth his salt is going to be calling this guava. Like that's would be an affront to their national ethos. Like they got to mark the one that I suggested in specific. They actually do it slightly different where not only do they make it out of the pumice, but they have everything in there. The stems, the steeds, the sticks, the whole, it is completely the waste product of winemaking that goes into it. And the, the pips, like the seeds had a certain something to it because I've had Mark where they actually remove the, like the actual branches from the product, like, and Jackie Lowe, they don't, everything gets tossed in and mashed up. So it's, that's another interesting little tidbit about them specifically. So on, on the Billy, French is, note, oh yeah, go ahead. Say Bi Billy, is it not, is not all brandy within France, the result of like, no one's growing grapes specifically for their cognac and armagnac or are they? I wasn't yeah, under are. the impression that they were. Oh, okay. I yeah, like okay. middle southwest of the country. There, I'm yeah. gonna. So this is distinctly different, majority, right? Yeah, Armagnac. I would say, given that the number of at scale producers of Armagnac is like minimal to microscopic compared to these other places, mm -hmm. most of what I'm talking about when I say Armagnac, like these sort of random bespoke domains. It is very much the leftover winemaking stuff. Hmm. Like they are not trying to produce at scale. It's, oh, we just have this and we'll throw it in the chai, whatever they're calling their sellers and just have it at Christmas. That's, there's no real industry behind it in the same sense. Yeah, in the same sense. But there is, yeah, in the middle down there, Uni Blanc is the primary grape. And then that is grown down there for that. And then also just like bulk distillation wine. Some of it's sent down to Sherry for like fortification sometime. Um, yeah. But random question though, on the French side of things, do you have anybody or in your kind of spirit aficionado community that's into chartreuse? I just listened to another podcast <laughs> and met somebody recently and that's a, apparently a whole rabbit hole on itself. There's so many types that I'm um, not aware of. No, but I know that as a generality, people do those older VEP green chartreuses. And I, again, sound off in the comments, but as far as I know, chartreuse is the only spirit that actually ages in the glass. The so bottle, yeah. there's a lot of debate around old bottle effect and whiskey. Look, none of these things are inert entirely. Like obviously something has to happen to anything if it sits for 50 years. So I don't think that's a controversial statement, but theoretically there should be no additional maturation specifically for a whiskey in a bottle. Although the flavor certainly does suggest something happened but apparently chartreuse actually matures if i'm understanding correctly yeah that's pretty cool yeah no I, it does and then they have different eras of where they made it apparently they made some in spain and that's like a recipe that's just known by two monks so it's like such a, that's a strange <laughs> strange story but yeah no i think that's, right. that's a thing for a different time yeah awesome thank you so much i think those are those are all my questions. Now you have me just thinking about a bunch of whiskeys that I want. Yeah, we should yeah, immediately <laughs> go shopping right after this and see what kind of stuff we can't find. Yeah, this podcast yeah, costs I me guess a lot of money each week. I was going to say, now I'm going to flip the script and ask you guys some questions. How responsive to the guests do you like curate your own habit? Like after a particular, like on a wine podcast with someone who's, do you immediately just start going to say, oh, I got to get in on some of this, whatever region this person was talking about? Or do you guys stand strong and just do what you do? <laughs> I'll let Brady go first. I'm more malleable than Billy is in that way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's actually a good question because 
it's actually really when I talk about the arc of how someone explores some of these categories, it's really difficult to get the best information early on in your journey, not the best information, but maybe when we think about the best, the most unique recommendations in these kinds of things. Because if you just walk into a shop, if the store owner knows what he's talking about, we'll offer you something really good, but maybe not something super interesting right away. And I think that, yeah, if someone comes on and they're talking about things that I'd never heard of, or I didn't know the DRC made brandy, and I now think that's their absolute coolest product. And if I had anything from them, <laughs> it would probably uh, yeah. be that. So yeah, I think $2,300 is probably way undervalued given that they sell Remini Conti for 40 grand or they don't sell it for that, but secondaries for that. Yeah, well, so those kinds of things definitely will send me to... <laughs> they produce. Like what yeah. is the total annual production of the DRC Mark de Bourgogne or whatever they're calling it, like 10 cases or something like, so yeah, yeah maybe 2,300 is like a relative steal. The question yeah. there is, they definitely, their vineyards are very small, but they have a fair bit of pumice. And I think a lot of it is, I don't know if they still use basket press, but it's very gently. Anyway, I wonder if they could scale up their amount of market if people just started buying it, but knowing DRC, they're not in this for the money, they're in it for the craft. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. They don't need any more. Most of the Armagnacs that I've bought is they literally have a like itinerant distiller who goes farm to farm in like a horse and carriage that's the process yeah. is uh not very uh at scale let's call it <laughs> yeah so from my side i think what i we learn the most from a lot of folks is they tell us a cool like value like a great vintage that may be flying under the radar or like a region that they recommend and i'll use that as i'm out buying things i, I think our the podcast that'll air right before this, I did buy one of that guy's NFTs and got a couple of his bottles along with that. So that was the first one in a while. Um, but no, it's definitely, you learn something from just like this podcast. You learn something from everybody and it's like really cool to kind of do implement that in real life or you sound really smart among your friends too. I can just drop a couple of things. You said <laughs> yeah, and... yeah, that's the real benefit is social currency at the various cocktail parties. Um yeah, we're saying know, uh... you saying that Elijah Craig is like I'm like yeah like that that would have been that that's a good validated like that. that's what I would yeah <laughs> validate in that it's like yeah, if you don't like that you probably don't like bourbons that's a good way of putting it there there are some things where if it's not for you no no big deal but you probably just don't like bourbon yeah yeah nice cool. we'll have well, to we'll um... leave it at that thank you so much for joining yeah yeah so we we'll have yeah, to share some I mean, wine Rex maybe with you. Yeah, I would love that. I guess I didn't throw out any picks, but it's hard because I like what's the price point and what are you trying to bucket? Are you trying to fill metaphorically? But I'll throw one out there just because, you know what? Screw it. Like maybe, maybe it'll make someone's day. Occasionally, there are certain vintages of distilleries that pop up widely for sale at a given time. And usually it is fleeting. So for a while, that was Bowmore, independently bottled Bowmore was plentiful and readily available in kind of the like 98 to 2002 vintages from independent bottlers. And now those are completely gone. And for the most part, they were really good, like such a quality leap above their distillery bottlings. It's almost perplexing. Like, how do you explain the difference? And a few years ago, it was Kleinlish. For some reason, you could find 1996 vintage Kleinlish in the 20-ish age statement range for like 100-ish, 150, 160 bucks everywhere. It's all 96th vintage for whatever reason, bottled by a signatory, Gordon McPhail, whomever. 
And you see this periodically. So these like really high quality distilleries, for whatever reason, they had a small glut and it seems like it all comes out at once. So the pick of the day is rumored to be Lafroig. They're calling it unknown Islay, mysterious Islay. And this was first plugged into me by the Thompson brothers, who are mm-hmm. a relatively new bottler out of Scotland because they did this unnamed Islay series. They were all 89, 90, 91 vintage, thir- 29, 30, 31 year old Islays, which is already you're like, okay, what 30 year old Islets, which liver do I have to sell? Which kidney? You probably only want to keep your one liver you have, but which kidney <laughs> do you need to sell for this? And they were MSRP around 300 bucks, which if you follow the scotch market for a 30-year-old anything, raises eyebrows because now you're like, mm. this must be bad. There's no free lunch. So there must be something wrong with this. And quite the opposite. They are beyond phenomenal. Like at this point, I've tried four different kind of variations, three from the Thompson brothers. And just like the thing about old Lefroy that is different from modern Lefroy, if you're wondering, is modern Lefroy is very much bashing you over the face with its like unbridled peat and like fresh poured asphalt edine flavors, which some people love and some people hate. Older Lefroy is incredibly fruity and tropical, still smoking, mm. but it's like peated pineapple juice to make it simple. And doing more research because you don't have a huge surplus of late 80s 90s lefroy lying around it does seem that those vintages historically if you read reviews of them in the past have been highly tropical versions of lefroy so those bottles basically have sold out because people are not dumb and they buy them but signatory has over the summer into the fall released a whole crop of them as well called mysterious islay i believe let me just double check what they're calling them, but yeah, mystery Islay. So mm. those bottles are only available in Europe. There are retailers who will ship. You can Google them the same way I did. XVAT plus shipping, you're looking at around 385 bucks per bottle, but the 31 year old Lefroy, I don't know what to tell you. That's a steal and a half. And I did recently buy a few and I immediately opened one just to make sure that I wasn't a fool who was parted from his money. And I can safely say that was worth it. They're slightly different from the Thompson brothers, but we will probably look back on this podcast years in the future, fondly remembering when we could buy 31 year old nineties vintage Lefroy for a few hundred bucks and be like, man, the world wasn't all bad in 2023 because that is, that's like an opportunity from yesteryear. I hopefully if you do actually pony up 400 bucks and you're disappointed you're going to have to send a sternly worded email to billy at vint.com with your complaints. But I think that is obviously a premium price point, but the steal of the day from my point of view, if you're into Peter Scotch. Nice. Wow. I do have a buddy who would, I'm going to send that to him right after this. That works out well. And I liked how you threw in the casks from 98 to early 2000s Bowmore. That was the cask that we had at Vint that had a nice return oh, for investors. It was yeah, a 98. Nice. So. Good call. That was not scripted, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, but yes, they're just for whatever was happening at Bowmore, they were, and you get a little bit uh, lazy because Signatory was coming out with Bowmore's every other week, the Douglas Lang complex, their various brands. So I bought them and I was like, yeah, these are delicious. And then that's one of those ones that I do wish I had bought six or 10 of and just stored 
for the remainder of my adult life, those would be like in the 95th percentile drinking whiskeys. There's no reason to not have them and they were not expensive. So, you know, you can double down with a $400 Lafroig and make up for sins of the past. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you guys both. It was a ton of fun and hopefully can do this again. All right. That was our interview with Danny Jassy. I hope you guys learned a little bit about both bourbon, scotch, and also Mark and Armagnac. I hope we inspired you guys to go out and search for some new things. Also, stay tuned in the coming months, I guess. <laughs> You're going to see more whiskey on the Vint platform than we've had before, a few new producers. So stay tuned, and we have a lot of exciting stuff for you. And yeah, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Vint Podcast. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.